you know, Godfather, that franchise is probably at the top of my list or at least close to it from favorite movie of all time. And one of my favorite television shows is Breaking Bad. And like, what do they have in common? You start down a certain path and you might lose control of where it takes you, right? One of the reasons not to do bad things or not to cross moral lines, not just because you could get caught, right? Not because it might have the effects that you don't want, but it might have the effect of it turns you into somebody that you don't want to be. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the aim of a self-improved life, a happy life, a good life. Rudy loves this episode. We're talking about film and philosophy again. We are. We are. But we're talking about something that's... A masterpiece. A, a true masterpiece, Gwen. And I'm so happy that this new book is getting released. I think it just got released today or it's getting released tomorrow, July 28th. And it's the philosophy of The Godfather. And yes, we're actually talking about the masterpiece film series, The Godfather. And it's a series of philosophical essays. How can we take lessons from The Godfather and apply those to everyday life? How can we look at The Godfather through a philosophical lens? Loved this episode absolutely loved it. The book is The Godfather and Philosophy, An Argument You Can't Refute. And we have a returning guest, Richard Green, who also wrote about spoilers, spoiler alert, and philosophy. And this is co-edited with Josh. We'll have the links in the show notes. One of the things I really enjoy in discussions about philosophy and film, or even philosophy and literature, is that sometimes literature and film provides for us something that philosophy can't. And I think that that is really interesting. It is able to tap into something that a straight argument is unable to do. So I'm really fascinated with these discussions about film. What does it achieve about our understanding of justice, about right and wrong, about character development, about family? And one of the articles in the book, just the title alone should make people run out and buy this book. The title of the article is, Does Vito Corleone Live a Good Life? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, how, that's beautiful, beautiful for our Good is in the Details podcast approach because we are focused on living the good life. We hit all the bases with this one. <laughs> we really did. And we, and we really analyzed this essay. We analyzed the film. We analyzed why men love this film. We analyzed why possibly women also love this film. We talked about differences between the book and the film. We talked about Godfather 1. We talked about Godfather 2. We even brought up Godfather 3 in this phenomenal episode. I'm so close to doing my Frankie Pantangeli uh, impression, but you know what? I want the audience to to listen to this episode and then beg me to do an Instagram video of my phenomenal Frankie Pantangeli's impersonation on Instagram, which I will do. If literally one person asks for it, I promise I will do it. Okay, there's the call to action right there in the intro. We've got a call to action. That's excellent, Rudy. I'm telling you, it's a phenomenal impression. I've been doing it for like 25 years. It's excellent. This is an excellent book where you're philosophy curious, right? Where you don't feel like you have to delve into something that is super academic, but you can enjoy it. And that's one of the things that I like about this podcast. It's one of the things I like about studying philosophy is that it is for everybody. It's not just for the ivory tower. It is a way for us to engage and be more thoughtful in the, you know, in something like cinema in our everyday life. 
Amen. Okay, and let's talk the Godfather and philosophy with Richard and Josh. So Gwen, Josh, Richard, is there, is there such a thing as pop philosophy? Is that what we're talking about here when we talk about popular movies? Is that a thing? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, pop, pop culture and philosophy is sort of a big part of philosophy nowadays. That's how we make yeah, it. Yeah, right, at, at the at Pop Culture Association. Is it because philosophy is so out there and elusive and useless? That, is it to really make it you know, so, so useful for people's life? Is that, is that where the whole pop culture thing it's, comes it's in? It's to make it useless for more people. Right to 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 get everybody involved in the the complete worthlessness. So, well, yeah, no, I mean, I you know, I, there are aspects of philosophy, areas of philosophy, I guess, or segments that I think are extremely useful. If it's just philosophers sharing ideas, then all they're doing is getting more and more precise in the philosophical account that never gets beyond that little bubble or echo chamber. So yeah, so I think the idea is to, to take the useful parts of philosophy, the stuff that pertains, you know, how to live or how to live one's best life or what one ought to do or, you know, what one's possibilities are if, if one's having a hard time sorting that out and, and make those tools available for wider audiences, educated laypersons. Who is the genius that came up with The Godfather and philosophy? Well, Here's one way in which philosophy can be helpful. Uh, I can tell you that there's a flawed assumption in your question that it takes genius to come up with these ideas. I sort of, <laughs> I, I sort of had the idea. So both Richard and I have um, done a number of these books. Uh, we actually both worked on the punk book. That was a really fun project, Punk Rock and Philosophy. We did a, a book on Westworld together. That was really fun. About a year and a half ago, I was just thinking, you know, there's been so many of these books. It seems like we're running out of uh, intellectual property to do these books about. Part of the reason that is is because there's so much stuff that's coming out now that there's hardly anything is watched by everybody. You binge something for like a week and then you forget about it. And maybe a million people watched it with you, but now they're on to the next thing. And you're not going to get 20 people to write a chapter in these books. You're not going to get anybody to buy it. So I was just thinking, is there any intellectual property or any big franchises that were left out that never got a book? And I just did some thinking and did some, hey, nobody's done The Godfather. And that seems like it's a pretty big miss. That's, you know, if there's the big uh, movie franchises or book franchises that have real intellectual weight in society. That's like on the top of the list. So we pitched the idea and uh, did a little bit of pushing and we, we eventually got the green light and we're really pleased with how it came out. The theme of justice was coming up a lot. The theme of justice and family. When you're going through these essays, how does the concept of justice, when we're talking about a crime family, actually work? What's that appeal? It's interesting because at least several of the, the very main characters in, in The Godfather you know, throughout the trilogy seem like good people, and they're being juxtaposed to bad people, right? So you've got Michael, the good son, who you know gets into the family business by killing a cop you know, and, a, and another head of a mafia to save his father. And these are all presented as really virtuous acts. And he's there contrasted with Sonny, the violent, ugly, hothead. I think a lot of the authors of these chapters sort of took it upon themselves to say, what are we to make of Don Corleone, right? Vito and, and Michael Corleone, right? Vito in the, the second film, you know, they give his backstory. He's just standing up for people in the neighborhood. So it's various just acts that sort of lead them to do each of the things they do. But then you look at the aggregate of those just acts, and these are violent, ruthless killers. And they're also very greedy. They're not just just. They're complicated people. 
right? But um, but they're they're sympathetic characters, right? So that screams for philosophical freedom. I got to piggyback on what you're just saying, Richard. Uh, so I've been doing good as in the details now for three years. And Gwen has been trying to educate me on Aristotle, Aristotle this, good life that, the name of our podcast is this. I didn't understand any of it until, until I read this essay, does Vito Corleone live a good life? And what a terrific, terrific essay explaining virtues and the different types of virtues and then applying that to both Vito and Michael and Justice if you don't mind, I don't, I don't mean to zero in on this this particular essay, but I warned Gwen that I wanted to really talk about it because the name of our podcast obviously is Good as in the Detail. So it's almost like the essence of our show is wrapped up in this particular essay. Without delving into the details of it, like I'm curious as you guys were involved with this book and you guys are the professors, what is it about this particular essay that, it, that you know our listeners should take away from it? Well, I think one thing to point out is it's really easy to get into this mode of thinking that like there's the people who care about ethics and justice and doing the right thing and the people who don't. And of course, the mafia or people who are in, involved in organized crime are in the category of, like, you know, they just abandon that. And in fact, when you not only in fiction, but in, in it's true to life that a lot of criminal figures actually have a very strong sense of justice, maybe more than the average person. They're almost sort of trying to reconcile the thing that they've done and trying to make up for some of their sins by really uh, having a strong sense of right and wrong and justice. And the question that an essay like that really poses is like, can they actually reconcile the life that they're living with some of the ideals that they would at least uh, say that they're trying to live up to? It's a really complex stew. Yeah, and, and the payoff is not that, you know, Beto Corleone is good, right? It's that there's all this goodness to take into consideration, but it, it still comes out on balance as, um, as, you know, ultimately not good, I think, or good I took that from it because what, I mean, really the essence of this essay, it's highlighted at the very end. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It's what's the connection between the good life and the ethical life? And truly, I, I think what the essay is trying to answer is, okay, can you actually have a good life if it is at its base unethical? That, that's kind of what I took away from it. Gwen, what are your thoughts on that particular essay? I mean, was this the one that – was I incorrect and in this is the one that's really about what our sh- a good portion of our show is kind of about? That's an interesting question because the idea of life to be good, that one of the prerequisites of it is that it is an ethical life. The problem, though, is that justice seems to be reduced to um, an idea of revenge almost. Yeah, I know. It's certainly you can live outside of the law and live uh, like the law as we build it in our government. Like that's in principle possible to live a moral life because you could be living in a country with an unjust government, right? Uh, yeah, but the Corleones aren't just like breaking mundane laws. They're killing people. They're stealing. You might have not have a problem with them like running vice rackets, but they're doing a lot of terrible things. At the same time, Vito is very concerned with justice, right? The undertaker comes to him looking for justice, and he has one idea of justice. Justice is killing or the men who beat up my daughter. Vito says, well, that's not justice because, you know, we're trading. We're not trading an eye for an eye. We're trading something else. That is a great tension in the film. All these people who, they aren't not concerned with justice, but they're clearly living a life that flies in a conventional concept of justice living in accordance with the social norms that we all sort of agree to. So then there's this question of what makes justice justice. 
that it's not a subjective thing because they are outside of it. I think it complicates the question of what constitutes justice. So what sense of justice do they have that we must understand it even though it's outside of the law? So justice and law are not the same thing. Right. So if it is a subjective thing, or maybe, a, you know, better put, a, a relativist thing, to some extent that gets them off the hook, right? So one of the chapters in the book sort of explores what they have to do to people who betray them, right? And it, it looks at the case of, you know, Fredo, who betrays Michael, and then um, Pentangeli, who is essentially a snitch. And there's there's a whole code there, right, along with the Omerta, right, the, the code by which they live. If the governing you know, moral system is some sort of relativist system based on their culture or their subculture, their shared form of life with the other people like them in their circumstance, then you can make the case that in a lot of respects, they're all sort of very moral. Pentangeli is forced to kill himself, but that's consistent with what's expected out of him. Fredo gets you know murdered for his betrayal, but not until after it won't harm their mother and so forth. Yeah. The only thing I would like to say is because I used to do a killer Frankie Pantangeli's uh, impersonation. It's Pantangeli, but I'm not going to do the impersonation here. But mm-hmm. boy, some of my old friends used to love my Frank Pantangeli. I never really understood the difference. The essay that you're speaking of is the one called Betrayal and Forgiveness in the Godfather, which is also terrific. Mm-hmm. I never really understood the difference between betrayal and snitching. I, even as a lawyer, mm-hmm. I didn't actually understood what a stool pigeon was. A stool pigeon is somebody that's not actually on the inside. It's actually somebody working for the law that's pretending to be on the inside. I didn't know those little intricate definitions until I read this essay. At the end of the essay, I mean, in the end, they talked about what I kind of grabbed from that was that Frankie's information was bad, right? He thought Michael had turned on him. You know, he was he was put into a corner. What was he going to do? Yes, yes, he betrayed Michael, but he was given a chance to redeem himself. And as a result of that redemption, his family was saved forever. Fredo, on the other hand, because that was, um, I'm sorry, Frankie was snitching, which, you know, betrayal is a part of snitching. But mm-hmm. Fredo's betrayal, because it was to the individual was something that was deeper. Now, did Michael go overboard in his reaction to Fredo? It's pretty obvious. I mean, the, the essay itself kind of answers that question, but you can also see in The Godfather Part 3, a big theme in The Godfather Part 3 is Michael living with the ghost of that horrible decision. But beautiful essay in really describing the difference of what Fredo did and what Pantangeli did. What are the thoughts about what Michael did to Fredo? Like, like... Is it just universal that that was a bad decision? Well, it's a kind of a tough question to answer for a couple of reasons. Number one, here's a, a rabbit hole we could chase probably way too far is we don't 100% know what Fredo did, right? We think, uh, we're pretty sure we he didn't actually think Michael was going to, there's going to be an assassination attempt. But so maybe there was like, he, he thought there was going to be a kidnapping or something. But more to the point, one of the really uh, interesting chapters touches on this idea of, is it worse to kill your brother than another person? right? Do you have special obligations to your family? If Fredo was just a stooge, it seems like most of us probably don't bat an eye at um, him taking out Fredo, but Fredo's his brother. Is fratricide worse than murdering just, uh, you know, some soldier? 
We have an essay in the book that explores that. Is it worse to kill your brother than another person? Or do you have special obligations to your family? And I find this a really interesting sort of debate or, or area of exploration. I think we all have these strong intuitions that, yes, of course, you do have strong obligations, stronger obligations to your family than you do to other people. So, for instance, the classic example is if my mother is in a burning building, and if your mother is in the burning building next to her, I'm going to try to save my mother before I'm going to try to save your mother. But that's not because I think my mother has more like inherent moral worth than your mother. It's I love her more and I care about her more. But does that mean I have an obligation to my mother that I don't have to yours? Or is that like just, I would feel worse about her suffering? Or it's like a conventional thing, like evolution has made us care about our family more than it's made us care about other people's family. It has this really confounding effect because I do have this very strong intuition that I have obligations to my family, that it's worse to hurt my family than it would be to another person. But is that philosophically defensible? That's a tough question. Yeah. What if the, the mother that was in the next building is Mother Teresa? Okay, that's a, we're not going to even go down that road. But that said, Fredo, who else could have right. killed Fredo but for Michael? The damage that Fredo could have continued to do to the organization, and yet he would have been protected because he was a Corleone, right, from the internal of the organization. Nobody else could have taken Fredo out except for Michael, right? Is that kind of the kind of line that people think? If you think that, then you maybe don't understand the the line. You know, this is, by way of analogy, akin to locking somebody up for 30 years because they shoplifted a soda pop. Sure, it stops it, but, you know, is is that proportional, right? I mean, the, the, the way to deal with Fredo... I think ethically, you know, even given the line of business they're in, is find a way to get him out of the business. If the goal was to stop Fredo problems rather than just exact uh, sort of bloodlust type revenge, it seemed like killing him was very extreme. And also, you know, it's significant that it didn't happen until after their mother was dead. You know, so it clearly wasn't a problem that had to be stopped within the next few years. It was something that could be dealt with. Ideally, from Michael's point of view, their mom lives to be 105 and, and he exacts his revenge on Fredo for the betrayal decades later. So it brings up the question of proportionality and, and justice, right? Is, uh, is, I mean, that's that's probably the ethical the ethical questions here. And, and that was addressed in it. I mean, that the essay itself said, did Michael really need to do this? Couldn't they just have, you know, yeah. put him away someplace like where they had before? Well, they previously did have Fredo kind of isolated and not in charge of much, yet <laughs> Fredo did something that almost got Michael and his entire family killed. So it's like, could they have put him away? Seems like that didn't work before, Richard. No, no, no. I know. And they and they and they send him to Vegas, right, to deal with Mo Green, and that put him in a situation where they were again at odds with the other crime families that, that Mo Green was biting up to. But putting him away and sending him to do business might not be commensurate in that sort of way. Uh, by the way, just on a, a side note, Mo. Green was played by um, Alex Rocco. And uh, one of the, the best days of my young life, I was in grad school and I, I went to play a round of golf at the municipal golf course where if you're you know not a foursome, they pair you up with other people. And I got paired up with Alex Rocco. You know, it was 18 holes of him telling stories about the Godfather. Wait, can I ask a question? Was, Why the hell my, was Alex Rocco playing yeah. at the municipal golf course? That's a that's a philosophical question right there that, that <laughs> no one can answer. Uh, I can answer. It's easily answered. The municipal golf course in Santa Barbara is gorgeous. It's an amazing course, and, and the people that play Sandpiper and the other top-notch courses down there often go to the Muni because it's incredible. But yeah, we're, we're there with Alex Rocco. My friend 
turns to me on the first hole. We're golfing with Mo effing Green, although they didn't say effing. And, and we were just off to the races. It was, it was four hours of Godfather talk, inside stuff, gossip, who in the cast he didn't like, who he did. He, he wasn't a shy man. It was great. Is there a scene from The Godfather that you think is captures a philosophical idea that's that's visual that probably is better than any text? You know, when Michael puts out justice, it, it's not because he's doing what he thinks a justice system ought to do. He's hurt and he's betrayed and he's going to exact his revenge. At least in, in the, the case of Fredo, what the film shows is that these are emotional decisions. It's a, an emotional decision to enter the world of crime. Don Corleone Vito didn't want Michael there. Michael didn't want to be part of that life, but he felt some sort of you know moral pull in that direction, in part because Sonny is completely unhinged. Fredo's incompetent and Tom's, you know, conciliary. He's not mafia material in that sense, right? He's the lawyer. But I want to say one thing, you know, when we talk about the justice system, it's supposed to be, you know, dispassionate in that sense. I think that's just a ludicrous suggestion that it's actually that way. I mean, if you just look at the statistics on, you know, who gets prosecuted, who gets arrested, who gets jail time, and those kinds of things. I, I mean, I think people will sit in a courtroom and look at a defendant and wonder how much that defendant's kind of like them or their loved ones. And those things factor into the decisions every time. So, you know, Michael gets in that situation and says, well, gosh, you know, we, we've got some pretty clear rules here. Fredo's betrayed me. I have to exact revenge. And then the revenge that he exacts, because he's Michael, who's not the guy that we saw in the beginning of Godfather 1, that's this cool, moral... Decorated, decorated World War II soldier, you know. Striving to be good. Yeah, he's total out of... He's more sunny than Michael. Michael is presented. Once he decides that he has to do something, you know, he goes into his Sonny's dead to me now routine. Do, do we think that part of the attraction of the movie is is Michael's transformation? In that at the very beginning, our introduction, he's wearing, he just came back from the war. He's taking it very seriously. He says, I reject that life. That's just my family. But the events and the circumstances and things that are literally outside of his control pull him into that life and then he he does transform into that monster and and we are watching that melodrama right the central character the transformation of michael is as you're watching it you're like could that happen to me could i become a murderer could i kill a police captain granted a corrupt police captain but like male or female you step into the shoes of the character of michael corleone and you question your own ethics i think that's part of the attraction i don't know what do you guys think i it is for me i mean i don't know what this says about me but you know godfather that franchise is probably at the top of my list or at least close to it from favorite uh, movie of all time uh movies of all time and one of my favorite television shows is breaking bad and like what do they have in common is like you start down a certain path and you might lose control of where it takes you, right? One of the reasons not to do bad things or not to cross moral lines, not just because you could get caught, right? Not because it might have the effects that you don't want, but it might have the effect of it turns you into somebody that you don't want to be. There is like a fear that we all sort of have in that regard. And yeah, it's, there, it is a, a scary proposition. To your question, I do think that is part of the appeal. It is... The Godfather and Breaking Bad and similar stories 
are warnings in that regard, and they're warnings that are told really well. But we 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 are drawn to those sort of stories because maybe sort of inherent fear that we have. Yeah, I I don't have anything to add other than to second that and um, answer your um, question affirmatively. What I love about The Godfather is Michael's story arc from the person you see at the beginning to that person that's just completely despicable. And then in the codec, he tries to change all that and, and fails miserably. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. There, one of the chapters is on Connie's transformation as well. That it really picks up in the codec. And I, I like that story arc too, but this is about people. And then you can contrast it with Vito, who's kind of this bad guy, but for good reasons. And he doesn't change that throughout his life. Speaking of Connie and, and the question that I posed about women, not being a woman, Gwen, was that an unfair assumption that uh, that that male or female? No, no. I mean, I'm a. I mean, at heart, I'm a woman. Come on, I mean, you know. But no, but but no. But really, I want to ask Gwen from a woman's perspective: What is the attraction to the Godfather? Was I incorrect in assuming that? Oh, men and women—that's why they like it. I'd like to hear from a woman. And, you know, besides myself, the, you were the only one on here. I'd really like to hear a woman's perspective. I think the reason why it has this appealing value is because it's this film is calling to these higher ideas about family and what is good and what is right and what is wrong. It is a very masculine film, but that I don't think makes it less appealing for me or for a woman because it's appealing to these high things. Something that I'm interested in knowing for from Richard and Josh, I rewatched the baptism scene just to kind of, you know, remind myself of this film. And I was just so struck by the visual of that. I am very interested in this question of what things like literature or film can accomplish that a straight philosophical text cannot. That's why philosophy appeals to literature often in order to make its point. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's plenty of examples from the Godfather. The baptism scene is great because there's all the religious stuff going on and then all these murders happening. And, then, you know, he's playing the role of this family member while he's killing members of the family and all. But I thought of a, a different example as you were saying it. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the television show The Bear, but there's a episode in season two where they have this. It's a flashback episode. This family um, get together. You know, it's a, a holiday around Christmas time feast, and they, they do the Feast of Seven Fishes. I'm now trying to describe it to you using words, and the, the point is that you can't. Um, there's so much mayhem in this that no amount of philosophical treatment can capture the nature of these really messed up family dynamics in the way that just watching people yell at each other across the dinner table can. And so that, that I thought, was a, a good example of that. Other examples from The Godfather, right? The, the juxtaposition right at the very beginning where the, the, you know, the wedding's going on and there's all this stuff that, you know, to an external viewer would just look like a very normal thing. Um, and then there's the Don inside meeting people one after another. And they're coming with the request that he can't deny because of some custom, essentially agreeing to, to like have this person killed and that person killed and this person and, and so forth. So there's, there's a nice kind of juxtaposition, you know, appearance reality sort of thing going on there that words don't capture. You know, so a lot of people, myself included, sort of start to roll their eyes when the evolutionary psychologists like start to connect dots that are, they may have drawn. But, you know, this sounds plausible to me that for thousands, you know, for the majority of human history, how do we pass down wisdom from generation to generation? It wasn't with philosophy. It was, you know, it was with stories. That, right? Uh, that's how we did it for 
tens of thousands of years until, you know, philosophy came along. I mean, this is the story we're all tell that we're all told. Then philosophy came along. And it's not like we abandoned story, but we started doing it in a slightly different way, but there's something just fundamentally ingrained with like the human experience where we're drawn to stories. We learn from stories really well. It could be our evolutionary uh, history that I would love to hear somebody smarter than me talk about that. But yeah, it's just part of the fundamental human experience, I think probably because of our history. Uh, yeah. I, I, another one of these, I think when Michael steps in to protect Vito when he's in the hospital, right? There's this sort of existential idea about, you know, being a, a man of ideas versus a man of action. Um, and that's, you know, where Michael's transformation truly begins, right? He's this, this person that's very thoughtful and circumspect until this exact moment when he's forced to, to act. One of the chapters in the book talks about the Don's true self and Michael's true self, and that that can never sort of get too far away from their behaviors. And I, and I think that sort of visually captures this idea that maybe Michael didn't know who he was until that moment. It was a con that he'd given to Kay and a you know, con that maybe Vito had started telling him when he was very young, you're going to be this kind of person and not this kind. This is not what I want for you. If you had asked earlier, Michael, who are you? He would have told a very different story than the story he would tell at you know, right after that moment. That sounds like Simone de Beauvoir. You, you learn who you are in situation. Yeah, very much so. Another is in the, the opening or the kind of the middle midpoint of part two, where Michael gets to Cuba and he's with these other moth, you know, mob figures and they're going to carve up Cuba to make it this like sort of fantasy paradise for U.S. travelers, this sort of like pleasure island. And it's right in the middle of the Cuban revolution Michael sees, and he later calls this out, Michael sees a revolutionary commit suicide by killing one of the guard, or, you know, he pulls out a grenade, commit suicide, taking out one of the captains. He brings it up later and he's asked, well, what does that mean? He's like, it means they can win, right? Because the soldiers are paid to fight. The revolutionaries, they're fighting for something greater than that. And the, yeah, there's a, just a, a great sequence there that really highlights something about the fighting spirit there. I have to wrap up with this. The horse head. Everybody seems to remember when they think of the Godfather, they seem to remember Marlon Brando saying an offer you can't yeah. refuse. And then the horse head. Do we have any thoughts about the horse head? It was a real horse head, by the way. Oh my God. They, oh, they, yeah. they went to a dog food company. They got a real horse head. No oh. wonder it was so, so visual. But that, that would explain why it's so, vi that's why everybody remembers it. In the essay that I was talking about, about does Vito Corleone live the good life, they do briefly talk about Waltz. And they do bring up the point, and I remember this a lot. I remember reading the book. And dare I say, as much as I love the films, the book, this is one of the times where I say the book is better than the movie. Because of the details, the deeper, deeper details of each individual character, the book takes it to a whole other level. And the book describes Waltz as a predator, a sexual predator. Mm -hmm. And you, I mean, obviously, you know, the horse is is who suffers, unfortunately, but there is this love of the horse. And, and as, I mean, they, for some reason, you know, they chose not to kill Waltz, but they wanted Waltz to suffer enough to change his decision. The only thing I wanted to say, Gwen, is like you kind of get a sense of what a, what a, what a bastard Waltz is, but the book really makes you as a reader want Waltz to, to be punished. And the essay talks about that a fair amount. But yeah, I mean, the horse's head is iconic. I mean, you know, look who you're messing with. We will kill your horse and put it in bed with you, mother effer. I think part of it is like 
we're all drawn to that sort of level of like indescribable power that the Godfather has. Waltz has guards. Waltz lives in a mansion, but the Godfather somehow is able to orchestrate it so that he can kill this horse, slip the head into the guy's bed without him waking up, really send this guy a message in a way that sort of says something dark about us. I think that sort of level of power is really like attention grabbing, right? You know, Gwen, I can't speak for you. You know, Rudy, Richard, you can jump in if you want to. Like 90% of guys have walked, like when they're standing in line in a bank or if they're like passing an armored car, (laughs) one time or another have thought, if I really had to, could I take this down? Could I, you know, rob the, could I rob a bank if I had to? Could I take down an arm? If I really had to, not that they're like genuinely considering doing it, but like there is that sort of element and uh, of like, if I had to be like go full gangster, could I do it? And so it's just fascinating to watch a family of people who have taken that bargain. Like they're going to, I'm going to go for it. Right. And you see the price that they have to pay and it's, and it's dear. Yeah, I mean, when you speak about and they go for it, I mean, truly, the the film, yes, it's crime, but it is a it is a film about America. It's a film about entrepreneurism. It's a film about many, many, many elements. I mean, it's a film about immigrants being the son of immigrants. Myself seeing in part two what Vito had to go through, the corruption in his own community with Fenucci and everything else that's out there, and you really get a sense of how difficult the immigrant life is and how all the odds are stacked up against you. How are you going to overcome? And he he not only overcome, he excelled. Of course, he did it outside of the law. In a way, in my opinion, it even gives me more admiration for all of the immigrants in the United States that do it within the law, right? The people here that come here, they open up the liquor stores or they open up the gas station. Sorry, I'm from Middle Eastern background. So I'm obviously, I'm, make, I'm talking about people <laughs> from my, what, what people from my family have done. You know, the liquor stores, the gas stations, and they, they stayed within the bounds of the law. To me, The Godfather is great. It's a great immigrant story, but it, it gives me even more admiration for the immigrants that, that did things legally. I can't speak to that. My family was immigrants as well. My great uncle was driving the getaway car and the police were chasing him after they robbed the bank. And he was shooting at them you know, out the back window while driving and shot his brother in the head. So I, I come from the other side of things. This was in the 1940s, you know, long before I was born. But the other side, yeah, like my grandmother's brothers, one one shot the other, and then then the other one was a cat burglar. I you know, I, you know. So I got a question, Richard. Have you ever had a Michael Corleone type of type of existentialism? A question of who am I really? Am I a cat burglar? Am I am I a getaway car oh, driver? Yeah. Has that ever happened, Richard? Yeah, my whole life is a series of am I these people. And there's a whole cast of characters that they're not all criminals, but none of them are any good. And at one time or another, I've, I've wondered if I were each of them. Oh, so. next podcast episode, we're going to we're going to have some fun with Richard for sure. This that's going <laughs> to that's some good stuff. Get ready for a runaway bestseller, because I, I am telling everybody I know to go and buy this book. I, I love it. And I, I'm not kidding. I feel like I have a better understanding of philosophy as a result of this book from the bottom of my heart i mean that i thank you for putting this book together well thank you so much for having us this has been a blast i always enjoy being on awesome so. well, thank you for your appreciation of the book we'd like to thank our partner for good is in the details that's newsly.me the all-in-one super app where you can get your news read to you in a natural human voice and listen to your favorite podcasts like good is in the details 
check out the show notes and use the offer code THEDETAILS to get one month free premium subscription. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this episode, avonmoreinc.com. Plan your next bridge party with everything from cards to coasters to napkins. avonmoreinc.com. Good is in the details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalsky and Rudy Salo. If you're enjoying the show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Check us out on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod, or Facebook. If you have any questions, if you'd also like to partner with us or sponsor an episode, good is in the details pod at gmail.com. Okay, we well, hope you're enjoying your summer. And thank you for this lovely discussion about the Godfather and philosophy. Until next time, bye.